Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stokes. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tony Spackenthal. This is Andrew Blahoff. This is Graham Corn. This is Brian Curl. This is Jason Ackermanis. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 20 of Amato's Fifth Quarter, and we are in the 20s. I've got a two in front of my episodes now. How exciting. It has been so much fun doing this podcast for you guys and and giving you interviews with high-profile sports people. It's been fantastic to sit down and have a chat with them, and I've really appreciated all the positive feedback I've gotten and people taking the time to give me a rating and a review. It definitely means the world to me, and, and to say now that I'm already in the 20s, it's gone really quick, and it's exciting, and I'm looking forward to hopefully getting more high-profile sports people on the show to chat about their careers. It'll be, uh, it'll be fantastic, and yeah, I do encourage everybody who has hasn't yet to to give me some positive feedback and and share the well share my socials and and share the podcast and get the get the name out there that definitely helps all the domino effect and the more people we can get uh, knowing about Amato's fifth quarter and talking about Amato's fifth quarter, it definitely will help everything. So definitely jump onto that and and thank you to everyone who who has done so already. 
But for now, let's get into episode number 20 because I've deliberately held this one back. I did have this chat with uh, with this superstar probably about six, seven months ago and been holding it back because the few people I have told uh, have been like, man, you got to upload it. You got to upload it. People want to hear from him. This is an interview that I always dreamed of having and I, I, someone I never thought I could get on the show and... When he agreed to come on, I was just over the moon. And to say that now he knows who I am, it's incredible. Tonight, my special guest from the AFL is the one and only Jason Ackermanis. That's right, Acker is on the show. I could not believe it when he agreed to come on. I was so excited. And I remember when I called him, I was very nervous. I was like, oh, hi, Jason. Would you be interested in coming on the show and having a chat? And he's like, yeah, man, let's, let's do it. No worries. And he's... Larger than life figure. We all know he was very controversial in his career. He says what he thinks. He doesn't hold back. But that's that's something you have to... It's not everyone's cup of tea, but that's something that you have to respect him for is that he doesn't lie. He doesn't bullshit. He tells you the way it is. And some people just don't like that. You know, he did have a lot of controversies in his career. He obviously had the issues at Brisbane and then at the Bulldogs. And, and he does go into detail with all of those things. We talk about a range of issues uh, through Jason Ackermanis' career. We talk about uh, his family life and, and the sort of the, the very interesting story that is his family life. We talk about the, the death of his mother, obviously his football career. We talk about the Brisbane Bear days under Robert Walls. We talk about going to the Brisbane Lions and, of course, that incredible uh, dynasty that was the Brisbane Lions, four grand finals in a row, three premierships. And then we talk about his acrimonious end to Brisbane, going to the Western Bulldogs and the mountain of issues that occurred there and the premature retirement of Jason Ackermanis. It was an absolutely incredible chat and I really cannot wait to bring it to you guys. And just talking about him as a footballer, it doesn't matter what anybody says about him, outspoken nature, saying the possibly inappropriate things at inappropriate times, this, that. You have to marvel at Jason Ackermanis because on the field, he was one of the best players to ever play. He, he was fast. He could take a good mark. He was strong. He could kick on both sides of his body, left foot, right foot, did not matter to him. Um, and just so silky and smooth and quick. And and just, he was the ultimate footballer, in my opinion. Just the consummate professional and just a brilliant, absolute pleasure to watch. Throughout his career from 1995 to 2010, he played 325 games, 421 goals. He is a three-time premiership player in 2001, 2002, and 2003, of course, that three-peat with the Brisbane Lions. He was a Brownlow medalist in 2001, the highest individual award you can win in the AFL. He uh, is a four-time All-Australian in 1999, 2001, 2002, 2004. He's a two-time Brisbane Best and Fairest in 1999 and 2005. He is a one-time Brisbane leading goal kicker in 2004, a one-time Western Bulldogs leading goal kicker in 2009, and he was the winner of the AFL Goal of the Year in 2002. And of course, he is in the Australian Football Hall of Fame. So look, I'm going to stop talking now because I'm, I'm just so excited. I want to get into this episode. Let's bring the man on. From the Brisbane Bears, the Brisbane Lions, and the Western Bulldogs, it's the one and only Jason Ackermanis. Carousella, Ackermanis, talking about sparkle, Jason Ackermanis. 
to the boundary line, but goes to the speedy. Ackermanis, a goal here could be a very telling one. It's a great snap. Ackermanis to Acker. Acker on the left. Going and going. He's got his first for the Doggies. Straight wins on this home track at the Gabba. Ackermanis on the charge. This will lift the crowd. Ackermanis takes him on. Backs himself. Now you see. Now you don't. Pulls a rubber out of the head. Takes a goal. Lynch can't manufacture a mark. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter and today I've got a massive guest on the show. I'm a bit nervous about this one. It's Jason Ackermanis from the Brisbane and Western Bulldogs Football Clubs. Acker, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no worries, DA. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a Australia day, depending on where you're listening, what a great country we live in. People still complain. Anything. <laughs> and a very, very happy Australia Day to you, Acker. Thank you, mate. It's, uh, well, you're down there. I'm up here. It's just a glorious day here in Brisbane. And uh, we can see the cricket pitch. We're going to have a charity cricket match, which goes all day. Of course, I won't make it all day. I'll end up, <laughs> I'll end up being comatose if I did. <laughs> but no, we, we're ready to go. You know, always good. This is a mental health charity, mind you. You know, Apparently, it's a, it's a big issue. So anyway, we'll get to the bottom of it yet. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to see you still doing good things. But it's been now, it's hard for me to say it, but it's been over 10 years now since you, you left the football the football world, since your last game for the Bulldogs. Uh, what have you been doing over the last 10 years and how have you settled into your first decade out of professional football? That is a good question. That is a good question. It's sort of funny when you finish footy because you're never really sure where it's going to go and how you're going to get there and what you're going to be good at or where your life may lead and I, I was pretty certain that I'd be doing media which I did I did radio for MTR back then they're defunct now but they're a new station there's Steve Price with my my co-host and and I work with Andrew Bolt and Sam Newman there so that was really good did a bit of TV today show and a few other things and then I did uh, still did the columns for the Herald Sun so news call for many years and and then I was sort of a bit lucky uh, one of the guys I met through footy at the Bulldogs was a big sponsor and we ended up going out and doing uh, foreign exchange and we had a big foreign exchange company so I used to bring in all the money from China for Crown Casinos for example so that was one of the things we used to do and it was really good and it went on for a few years and then just like out of nowhere after about three years it just stopped dead the media stuff that was a bit of a shame because I thought I had a few skills and delivered a hell of a lot of good content but you know New guys come out and they got the job. So what happened from there is head office with the, the foreign exchange is actually in Albury. So after that, I think it uh, just before the start, so the end of 2012, sort of left the media and 2013 came and I, I coached in the Ovens of Murray, which was great. Went and got a degree uh, from the University of Queensland for, for coaching. So naturally, I'm thinking I'm going to go into the AFL, coaching, etc. Got the foreign exchange businesses all sort of bubbling along nicely and then uh, my business partner sued the government so that was a great idea that was the end of the foreign exchange business they, they cut our license off pretty quick and from there we kind of went in I was still coaching and it was going right and then you know I just had a couple of bad eggs in my club that, that uh, I had kicked out and uh, small places like Albury are, can be but they are very clicky 
And uh, the locals who never move and aren't really overly well-travelled, these particular couple caused me a bit of issue, and then that was it. I kind of, from there, uh, probably coached for five years and and said, that's it, I'm going to step back from coaching. And in the meantime, I'd been playing golf all the time. So I went to, after that, sort of 2018, 2019, 20, would have been 2020. So I was pretty much doing golf full-time. And our foreign exchange business ended up becoming an augmented reality business, which which was great. It was like Pokemon, but you just put bags of money around, people collected, that's still going, called Zoo Kaz. And, you know, Coffee Club, we just drop bags of money, you go and collect it and go in and and you get redeem it, you get yourself 20 bucks off. And then out of that, we were trying to use Bitcoin because it's a global product and being a cryptocurrency, uh, they're, they're much better options. So... We didn't like Bitcoin because it's too slow and cost too much money and pretty bad for the environment. So we decided to make our own. So we just finished that. That was a three-year build. And we basically built what Nibber is today uh, that Facebook wanted to build. So that'll work in well, but that'll be a global currency. So from there, a couple of suspensions out of golf clubs with the locals. I'd had enough of them and, and they had a big sook and I got suspended for a couple of pretty average reasons and then said, that's it, girls. I'm going back home, going back to Brisbane. And I... And in doing so, March last year, probably with the market, the way it was all going, lost millions, as many people probably did. And, you know, you might have made it all back now, I don't know. But for us, it was devastating. So all the footy money I had and everything that I learned over that 16-year career just uh, vanished. And so having lost all that money, I just said, that's it, girls. Uh, you know, the, the two tech companies, they'll be fine. They'll take a bit longer because they don't really give you a ways just yet. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go get my real estate license and my auctioneering license, which I did. And August 1st, I, I came back home to Brisbane and been working in real estate and had just gone out of my own with Acomats Properties and Blue Moon. And so here we are today, all these years later, and that's that'll fill you in for the nearly 11 years that's happened since I retired. So needless to say, you've been busy. I just want to be busy. It wasn't that busy. We, we had a three-year-old, well, we have a three-year-old next month. And for the first couple of years of our life, we had to get my wife to go back to work, particularly last year. So I was uh, doing golf when I could. Uh, the tech companies were still being built, the software and stuff. So I had to look after our, our then just turned two-year-old for three days a week. So it was real revolt, re, re, roles reversal kind of stuff. And so as a husband, it was good. I certainly had way more empathy to what uh, women go through when we're out working. And, you know, they're full-time jobs. You don't pay very well, but they are incredibly rewarding. So that was... That was the sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Very impressive. You're a very intelligent man. I love to hear that. Try our best. <laughs> Try our best. Uh, I think my intelligence is is uh, it's a bit hard to read because I have that passive aggressive kind of nature where I'm like, oh, it's all cool. I, mean, I go full sledgehammer. I go play basketball and get four fights a game, you know. And then and then yet when I can calm my mind down because it was fairly active, uh, don't have don't sleep a lot. Uh, it comes good occasionally, and then you know. I sit in front of a computer though and my head still falls off. I don't know how people do it because I'm clearly meant to be out in nature and talking to people. Just a lot there that you've that you've been up to. But what about, I'll take you back to the start, Acker. So you grew up in Mildura with your brother and your late mother. You moved to Queensland in the mid-80s. Now I've read your book, Open Season, in prep for this interview and your family story is very, very interesting. If you are happy to talk about it, would you mind maybe giving the listeners a bit of an insight into your upbringing and your story from the beginning? Yeah, well, in Mildura, my mum moved down there. She was married at the time to John Akamanis, where her last name came from. He's actually Canadian. And so 
he would go off to Melbourne. And Mildura to Melbourne is probably a good six hours. Adelaide's closer where you live. It's only four hours. So most Mildurians tend to go to Adelaide if they have to drive and reluctantly they'll either fly or, or drive down and to Melbourne. And my, uh, my mum's husband, John, he would go down and work for telecom because he was pretty pretty handy in IT back in that era. And my mum uh, was working at the local bloody Mortimer Motors and my uncle was down there as well. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he was a mechanic. So was my uh, soon-to-be dad. And one Christmas, they had too much to drink. And before you know it, my dad and my mum, my dad was married his whole life until last year when he passed away. But he was he was married, had an affair with my mum, had me. A couple of years later, had my brother Rory. Retardo, as he's you know affectionately called uh, <laughs> cool these days, he's he's a good fellow, he's a copper now. But you know back then it was just, we had no idea. So we were young, and I don't know what, what was going on in the late 70s, but it seemed to be pretty common. So my my mum after about she lived there for 11, so just on eight years she decided to come back home to Brisbane where she was born and bred. And uh, my dad obviously clearly wasn't going to leave his wife, so she worked that one out, and then she came back to Brisbane. I'm glad she did because Mutura being Madura, a nice place and, and all that, but, you know, pretty small as well. Not a lot of opportunities compared to, say, Brisbane. And coming back here was, was for me, I had no idea. I never heard of Rugby League. I never heard of Rugby Union. I never, we never even heard of Sir Joe Bianco Peterson, who was the famous and dictator premier here for so long, who ran the state. So it was pretty crazy times, but because I played Aussie Rules since I was very little, coming to Brisbane, well, and being a smaller skinnier redhead kid it was pretty pretty easy to go and play footy again for Maine which I actually moved just around the corner from Maine at Albion and it was the biggest club back then so the juniors weren't too bad but shit I carried that team, those teams for a while it was pretty handy and then started to make state teams when I was sort of about 12 and and my footy kind of grew and my love for the game just continued even though it's a hard bloody sport and being being one of the well being the best player in the state was pretty comfortably a, a fairly uh, you know, high level you want to keep anyway. But, you know, I had my dad uh, in that situation. Uh, many years later, though, you know, life goes on. My mum, unfortunately, passed away. I was about 20. But when I was 28, I, uh, I rang my half-brother because I knew he wouldn't have changed his name and, and told him the family secret because my mum had only told us when we were 13. So when I turned 13, my mum told me my dad was Dennis. Uh, he lives in Mildura. Married, he's got kids, you've got a couple of half siblings. So I knew that some stage I really would like to meet them. So after all that success and stuff, it kind of felt right. I told my brother that that, that would happen, and he was reluctant to let it happen. I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So I meet Nige, my half brother. I know it's a pretty crap name, but Nige is he's, he's an electrical <laughs> engineer. He's working in Adelaide at the time for Sage Automation. He's electrical, uh, well, as I mentioned, electrical engineer. But my half sisters are like one's nearly a year older to the day and the other half sister's like five months younger than me so my dad was pretty busy safe to say but <laughs> i met them and my dad had to come clean he'd been sort of living this lie his wife never knew and it all came out and i think in the end uh, those last well it's probably been what's 15 nearly 16 years now my dad ended up selling up in Mildura and then moving up to up to brisbane here where we are now living with my brother rory and I had a pretty good relationship with him me i i couldn't give a lot of time to the guy just because he never helped my mum or, or us but Rory had a good relationship in the end and he passed away as I mentioned last year so yeah it's pretty convoluted pretty crazy but 
the only problem with my dad was he was adopted and so we know who his mum is but we don't know who his dad is so that's always been a bit of a family kind of uh, uh, a secret that we had to sort of uh, sort out but it's yeah we'll get there I mean 23 and me and a few of those DNA sort of programs you know, hopefully we can marry it all together how's this though DA I had a bloody email Monday morning from a guy in America who's done the test and he said I don't know how or why but you're my closest relative you live in Australia so somewhere there is the mystery will be I suppose solved well we hope it will because you know when you go on the doctor and you say they say any family history and I, I know my mum's side yeah, no worries but my dad's side I got no idea so it'd be nice to find out wow that's crazy and you reckon uh, you will find that out eventually I think so because What's happened is I'm getting a bunch of third cousins. So third cousins uh, means you've got the same great-grandparents. And so eventually we'll weed out the problem. We sort of took until probably a couple of years ago. So my dad never knew, and my wife, who's a great researcher, ended up finding my dad's real mum, who was actually up the road in Broken Hill. And he ended up being one of five. So he had four half-siblings. So at least he, he met three of them. Unfortunately, one of them had died in a car accident one of his sisters who was pregnant at the time and did a tragic story but my dad ended up at least uh got to the end of his life and, and had some closure at least on on his mum's side of the family so it's, yeah it's pretty freaky but we'll get there and you have a good relationship with your your half siblings now i do i do my i'm really close to my older half brother no she's well, when i go I, he moved to melbourne so he now works, he worked for Rockwell, now he's back working for SAGE, but he, you know, I would go down from Albury, it was a good three hour drive, three and a half hour drive, and I would stay with him every time I'd go down for golf tournaments and stuff, so we ended up having a pretty good relationship, we still do, uh, and we became quite close. It's a strange relationship because you're not, you haven't grown up with each other, you haven't got that, you know, as you do with siblings, you know, the rivalry and the, you know, you're beating the crap out of him or you stole this and that and they remember forever. Uh, like I would with my brother. That shared memory is a bit lost. But my half, my older half-sister lives in Adelaide. She's a lovely lady. We're going great. She's a real superstar. Typical middle child, you know. Keeps it all together. And her her husband, Dave, and their two boys. And we've always been close to them. My, my younger half-sister, Shelley, is a bit, bit of a funny one because she, she was married, had five kids, got divorced, and then got remarried. She's just had her sixth child. So, you know, she's a nurse now. And you know, she's a little bit uh, solitary. She's a bit different to, say, the other two. But, you know, it's always been really good and pretty strong. So, again, strange, but, uh, you know, as adults, being friends and being, uh, I suppose, knowing that you're actually half-siblings, it makes it a bit easier, and then you will make the effort. Sorry to pause, guys. I do hope you're enjoying this chat with Jason Ackermanis, but we're going to take you back to last week's episode where I sat down and had a chat with four-time NBL championship coach, Brian Curl. Here's a little snippet. I worked and worked and worked and worked on my fitness and my quickness and, and things like that, getting up and down the court and just doing, you know, I was a role player. My role was to set screens and to rebound. Um, you know, uh, I got my most points when uh, when shooters like Eddie Palabinskis or Kenny Cole or Tony Barnett and uh, David Lindstrom, players like that, when they had a bad night and missed some shots and I got the rebound and put them back in, that's where I got my points from. There was no offence around me, but that, that was my role. I was prepared to play it and look where it got me. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy about that. So, uh, you know, it, it was just, it, it's incredible, you know, and I think too, you know, and I see kids, I coach kids with a hundred times more talent than what I've got 
but they don't want to do the hard work, you know, to get there. They, they think that it's just going to come to them, and it's not going to come to you. You've got to get out there and work for it. That's, that's the key factor to it, and, and I did that. I really did. Success followed Brian Curl everywhere he went in basketball, and it's incredible to think that he did not pick up a basketball, didn't even know what the sport of basketball was until the age of 21. So definitely go listen to that one. But for now, let's get back to three-time Premiership player and 2001 Brownlow medalist, Jason Ackermanis. Acker, we haven't even gotten on to your, your AFL career. You mentioned you were a very good junior player. And then you get picked up by the Brisbane Bears. And pretty much from day one, you're playing regular senior football. The first season was under Robert Walls. You played three finals for the Bears, along with future Lions Premiership players, Michael Voss, Craig McRae, Marcus Ashcroft, Sean Hart. The list goes on. What are your memories from those Brisbane Bear days? Because I find that everyone talks about Fitzroy, but not a lot of people talk about the Brisbane Bears days. What was it like that first season under Robert Walls? And it was the Brisbane Bears who finished eighth as a result of a good summer recruiting campaign where they netted Andy Gowers and Rossi Lyon. But the next 15 weeks, which included a groundbreaking two-week trip to Perth for the Fremantle West Coast Doubles, could only produce four wins. The side had been ravaged by injury during this time, with Lynch and Lyon managing only three games between them and Craig Lambert struggling to overcome a broken leg. Robert Walls announced that he would retire from the coaching position at the end of the year, which seemed to stimulate the season highlight. The unexpected recovery from seven goals down at three-quarter time to overhaul Hawthorne in round 16 at the Gabba. This effort became the catalyst to six wins from the remaining seven games, including stirring victories at the Gabba against Richmond, Essendon and Melbourne, and a place in the AFL finals for the first time. The national competition, Queensland football and the Brisbane Bears came of age with a tremendous final effort against the topside Carlton. Well, it was crazy. I mean, I I played in the National Carnival as a 16-year-old. Back then it was under 17. So I played in Adelaide, played unbelievable. And the last game we played at Footy Park and I was best on ground. That's against WA and like a... It's almost like the finals for us, what we we're doing at that stage. And the Bears had rung me and said, can you come and do the pre-season with us? So... Here I am, this uh, sort of skinniest but big legs, like good strong legs. And I go down to training and I just do the skills program, do a little bit of extra running because I was so young, being just 16, about turned 17. And man, that era, like Robert Walls was a fucking lunatic. And I mean lunatic. And he knows he's a lunatic. He's a nice, really not away from footy now. He's the nicest guy. You're like, man, what is wrong with that dude? But that was the era, you know. He'd come out at Barassi. He was one of his coaches. He'd just have a little bit of, bit of footage of Barass and he'd be screaming and carrying on. And he'd be like, man, what's wrong with that dude? But, you know, whatever issues they have, you know, they bring to the table. That's just coaches. They're always like that. So the, the following year when I play in Perth and get an All-Australian jumper, which is a bit rare for a Queensland kid play a great carnival, the Bears at that stage could pick you up in the, in the local selections. And myself, Michael Voss, Clark Keating, uh, were all sort of guys you remember. There's a couple of others you won't, but they were able to access us, a bit like the academy stuff now. So we could have been first picked in the draft. We could have been 10th, but we were basically the, you know, it wouldn't matter. We were always top 10 players. And we're lucky enough to be able to stay at home. I was still doing, I was about to go into year 12, on a scholarship at Nudgee College, which was great because we couldn't afford to go there. And being quick as I was, it was it was good fun and good training. So I was, you know, after round four, 
I remember Wolsey came over to me and said, we're playing a, a, a team called Carlton. They're going all right. You're going to play your first game against a guy called Scott Camprioli, who's a very, very good uh, South Australian player who came over. He's a bit more mature age. He was 21, so I was 18. Uh, a few years older than him. I went out and played on Scott, and that was the sort of start of of that journey. But Wolsey was very much, he changed his mind. I'm glad that it was good timing in one way. Wolsey was, so that was his last year. He was going to leave, and he told us with about eight games to go. And that's to say, there was a lot of happy people because he was a, was a lunatic some days. And he, he really did try and embarrass you when you weren't, particularly when you weren't hard enough. He was a guy that would stop, rewind, and redo the footies just to show just how soft your effort was on that particular case and so but in some ways long term because that group was young it was really helpful but playing 17 games that year was pretty much built on the back of him saying we need to get these young good young kids in give them experience because you know it takes time with them and it would show that all those years later uh you know you're talking from 95 through the 2001 before we won our first play we had a couple of coaches we had john northy in between there we had roger merritt for about eight games and then we was the great Lee Matthews game. So, but we'd gone from with Walls, who we finished eighth. We're the only team that got close to Carlton in that final series, lost by 13 points, and they just blocked everyone. They had a great year, but we were literally the second best team of the year by the end, and that gave us great confidence. So, we came third the following year with John Naughty. Merger came, all those kind of craziness. It wasn't really a big issue, but most people, you know, say it was. But the Bears were coming, and, and so that merger was right in the, the middle of that becoming a really good, solid team that was probably going to go and play, and they did, and we did. Uh, multiple years, finals, the whole lot, before we came last in 98, because John Norby, unfortunately, wasn't the greatest coach, and I've said that publicly, and I've, I've uh, said it to him. Uh, he would just change the game plan all the time, and in the end, the players couldn't buy into what he was talking about. After Walls, it was a big step difference, and... You know, we come last, they got rid of him with eight games to go and then Roger Merritt had the job and then somehow they convinced Lee Matthews to come out of the media. Uh, we know how successful he was with Collingwood, but he also learned a few lessons and we were able to get him and that was the sort of turning point in the end of 98 when we got Lee. Yeah, because 1998, you finished down the bottom and then 99, first season under Matthews, you make the prelim. Now, because of what you did from 2001 to 2004, a lot of people forget about that 99 prelim. Do you reckon it was a case of not being ready? So the first preliminary final starts, and Abraham's in hard at the centre bounce. The Kangaroos go to the left of screen. It gets over the top of White and Kerry. The little give forward by Scholl, going to ground Huskers, and it'll be a ball up. So from the centre, Ashcroft belts it towards the goal square. Lynch in a one-out. Wonderful mark! Sensation used his big frame and then launched himself. Well, that is the sort of form they need Alistair Lynch in if they're going to be a serious threat tonight, the Lions. Look at this, just using his strength to hold off Jace McCartney. The last lunge, and it wasn't a chess mark, he had to take it cleanly in the hands. That is only the second time the Lions have gone inside their 50. It's been all kangaroos. They've had half a dozen forays into their attacking zone today. To Pladact. Off the ground was Welsh. It's built towards Capuano. Getting down low was Ekamanis. They're going to be cute here. Good vision. Robbins spotted Lawrence towards Lynch. And Carey goes over the back. Here's a chance for one more. As seconds remaining, Harvey just to finish the night off. Three goals, Brent Harvey. And that is it. Right on siren time. Dennis Pagan congratulates his team as they congratulate him. Likewise, they're into the grand final. It's a tough one. I mean, going from last to third, and 
getting beaten by the Premier at that stage in North Melbourne on a really good run. I mean, they had they had great teams and they had a really good era, sort of that you know all the way through Dennis Bagan. I think I think in the end playing at the MCG was just it wasn't dawning. It's just a different ground. It's not home. It's some place you just because you know the grand finals there, so we always love playing there, and every interstate team does. They we cherish every game because you don't play a lot there during the year. A lot of times you might play there once or twice, so it's it's a rare day. Anyway, we got beaten. We got beaten on the night. They they, they did a few things that you know you could see. While some people could say it's dirty, some people could say it's bending the rules, some people could just say it's blatant buggery. But they did what they needed to do, and we. We copped it. I think Blackie got the broken cheekbone and a few other things, and they were they were willing to do whatever it took to get there. And I think that was they were just good battles to be in before it was our turn to come good and, and to win the comp. And I, without that, I, as bad as they were and as, as much as they hurt those losses, they end up becoming that, that thickest king you need a couple of years later when you're taking on the best in the comp trying to win the damn thing. Yeah, well, 2001, a couple of years later, is where it all starts. That amazing Brisbane team with Voss, Lepage, Black, McRae, Brown, Lappin, yourself, Michael, Lynch. I could go on forever. You win the Brownlow medal and also the first of the three flags. Firstly, what does it mean to you to win the Brownlow medal? Round 22, Brisbane Lions versus Sydney. Lions, M. Voss, one vote. Lions, C. Johnson. Two votes. Lions and Lappin, three votes. Fremantle versus Adelaide. Fremantle, H. Black, one vote. Fremantle, A. Fletcher, two votes. Fremantle, P. Bell, three votes. For much pleasure in declaring Jason Akamanis the 2001 Brownlow Medal winner. See Matty Campbell there, Michael Voss, his captain, Lee Matthews will be close by, Nigel Lappin and Simon Blacker there as well from that formidable midfield. The AFL Commission, along with football followers and supporters throughout Australia, acknowledge and congratulate the 2001 Brownlow medalist, Jason Akamanis from the Brisbane Lions. So it's not one you could forget easily, but I think People don't realise, like, during that first half of the year, I was playing outstanding footy, but we weren't winning like we did in the back half. I sort of had to carry the bloody group for a little bit here and there, and it was it was a really good half of the year. The second half of the year wasn't nearly as good on my personal game, but the team had come good. We, we won, to win that flag, we won uh, 16 games straight, average of about 60 points. It just, it just all clicked. But it, it, I think we were about ninth or something, so we were just hovering around the eight. Uh, the eight, sorry, the top eight come round eight, nine, and ten. So we weren't really flying just yet. But geez, did we come good and we beat Essendon at home and, and off we went. So when I got to the Brownlow night, I, two years before, a lot of people wouldn't know this, but I was our leading vote getter, volunteer in '99, all Australian, leads first year. So I'm thinking, man, I'm getting a few votes here. This is two years ago. And I'm thinking, I might get a few tonight. I knew I had a good year. And I sort of, the thing that did it for me, Andrew McLeod is, I played with with Australia, and he, he's a good mate of mine. And he he had a fantastic year. He was in the end, he came second. But I mean, I just had a bunch of games where I got three votes. And he's a bit unlucky in some of the games he played. And it's just the system. It's a, you know, you can be the best player on the ground and get three votes, and 
and you can be the fourth best player and get nothing. It's, it's the quirk of the round, like, but that's the way it is. And if you're lucky enough to play good footy and win games, I a lot of goals in the last quarter. So that night, the 24th of September, I just got a new car. I was going to get a free feed. I was pretty happy with myself anyway. But when I won it, it was it was a shock to everyone but me in some ways, but not to say that arrogantly, but I was I was hopeful, but, you know, you're so superstitious as a footballer, you'd never say it. And so, what else can I say? Uh, did I deserve it more than, say, Andrew McLeod, who had just an outstanding year as well? Oh, it's hard to tell. It's, it's, a, it's a fair and unfair system at the same time. So, in the end, I walk away, but we had a grand final to go and win. That was probably a better form because I, I didn't have to do all the media stuff. I didn't have, you know, I couldn't drink my own bath water. I had to, you know, get through the, the week. We had a you know, big game coming up. There was no real time to, to let it soak in because you just had to just get on with it. So, a few weeks later, like it's the best year you, you could imagine with the brown light. Uh, we win the flag, we beat Essendon, hot day down there. They got a few injuries. You know, they're right at the end of their run. They should have run 199, won 2000, losing one game. and Just couldn't quite get there. We were coming 2001. So, you know, three weeks later, I get married to my wife, Megan, who I'm still married to now. And despite her many <laughs> years of, of probably not wanting to be married to me, she's, you know, that was, it was just a crazy year. And, you know, we all celebrate this year coming up, you know, the 20th year of all that, the 20 years of brand, like 20 years of premiership and 20 years of marriage. So it's, it was a pretty crazy year, pretty crazy three weeks. And what about that grand final? What's it like when you run up the race grand final day in front of 100,000 people? It, it is, uh, I, I talk about it like, you know, you're already so nervous and jittery and, and all the things you're supposed to be as an athlete, because you are. You're always worrying about your performance, you're always hoping that he's, you know, in the the footy gods will be on your side. You do all that stuff. That's all there. And when you come, we come up the race and, you know, the sound, the noise of 100,000 people, like it's a, it hits you. Like it actually, you can feel it. You can feel it coming. It's rumbling. It's rumbling because the cameras are on you and then they show it into the, the stadium. And of course, they can't see you until you come up and through. And, you know, for our fans, of course, they're all cheering, but then you've got the opposition who are all booing and then you've got all the neutrals, which is, you know, probably most of the crowd when you go to a grand final back in those days because, you know, all the corporates go because they want to go to the grand final and they're sort of like clapping. And, but it's, it's so loud. I can't, just can't, I can't tell you how to be four or five metres from your teammate and be yelling at them and they can't hear you. Like, it's just that loud. So it's, be like standing behind, a, you know, a, a big 747 is about to take off and that noise deafening. And how did you beat Essendon? Because at, at that time, they were one of, arguably the greatest team ever. You know, one, one loss the, the year prior, only five losses in 2001 with Matthew Lloyd, James Hurst, Scott Lucas, Fletcher, Johnson, Kevin Sheedy. 14 points down at half time, but you basically dominate the second half. How did you run away with it? Wellman front spot, good mark. Lynch has had a terrific day. The kick stroke. He'd be one of the players of the match. He would certainly be in line for the Norm Smith. He's had seven marks, ten possessions, kicked two goals for They've done it. He's got the ball in his hands, Bruce. A bit of history here. Lee Matthews has been to the top of the mountain for a second time as coach. Once at Collingwood. And now he's done the impossible. Brisbane have won the premiership. And they've beaten the champs. Well, we knew, <clears throat> the thing with Essendon, we knew they had a few blokes that were a little bit off. So we had Brad Scott take Hurd, Hurd's the superstar, but, you know, we still sort of on half a leg. And that, you know, Hurd is the kind of guy that, that he, even if he's on one leg, he can still destroy you. But when you're restricted, as he was on this particular day, you know, to have a guy hanging off you, it's nothing he hadn't gone up against, he would have been up against 
you know, taggers like I was since I, was, I started playing. There's always blokes hanging off you when you're good, but they yeah, just couldn't quite have that dominance on the game. We had short heart running around, kicks end up becoming Norm Smith medal, and I think we, we dominated that second quarter. We just had a lot of shots, but we just missed a lot, but we weren't too worried because we'd just been running over the top of the team. So there's no doubt you could see the confidence in the group at half time because we just we literally just ran teams into the ground. We had that much energy and fitness in our game plan was just it was too hard to stop. So with that energy in the second half, eventually it was always gonna tick over and to beat them hundred and eight to eighty two, I mean that's a that's a good size margin in the grand final. They're always you know, you either get one or the other, it seems you get these really close games with these small blowouts. So for us it was we just the queue never went in the rack. We just went all the way to the line. You could see the teams before us do that. They never got too happy. Adelaide were the first real kings of the AFL with that back-to-back wins. And then us to come later, you just see they never, you know, even West Coast, we were watching them when they won in 94. They weren't getting, even even though the game was won and done, and mate, they were still just, they were high-fiving, but they weren't like smiling and, and you know, carrying on like they could. So it was really just that resolve. We've been there and done that as far as the losses. And there was no way we we're going to lose that once we got in front. And with our momentum for the year, it was it was pretty cool. And what's it like when the siren goes and you know you're forever scripted into AFL history as a premiership player? Everyone's different, right? I think with, uh, like, Sean Hart's a very religious man, so, you know, he'd be thanking God. <laughs> and, uh, and so he should, you know. And then I was, I was very emotional. I had my mum passed away probably, what was at 97. So, you know, it'd been a few years. And and that and I always felt like that, that spiritual society that comes out, I think, depending on the individual, it might be, might be God, it might be mum, might be... There's, there's reasons, because your family do so much for you in juniors that take you everywhere. We had no money. So my mum, uh, getting footy boots or a new ball was just impossible. You know, I, if I grew quick, I'd, I'd be in tight shoes. And it was just... It wasn't much fun, but, you know, being a single parent, she'd be there watching me every weekend. And so I think you, you get really emotional thinking about what they invest in your in your life. And for you to have, you're the one that succeeds, you're the one that takes the glory, but without that support, you know, it doesn't really happen. So I think for, you know, the rest of the crew that have parents who are alive or whatever, it's always something different. But for me, it was incredibly emotional. So... You know, get it done. I think I went straight to the ground, but Nigel had to pick me straight up and gave a big hug, and that was that was pretty indicative of the side, you know, and, and very, very much something that Nigel would do. You know, he's such a caring dude. So, yeah, that that final sirens, all that relief too. Like you've got like some huge, uh, I suppose, gorilla on your back until you win, and, and once you've done that, it's it's pretty straightforward and awesome. Very well answered. Year after, so 2002 is probably the most epic of the three against Collingwood. You, it's a wet day, no team really gets significant lead over the other, but you guys didn't even kick a goal in the first quarter. Dying stages of the last quarter, you kick one of the best grand final goals I've ever seen. Left foot snap over your shoulder, you're barely even looking at the goal when you kick it. Five minute warning, five minutes of game time left, Buckley desperate slaps it out, can Leon Davis pick it up, he's bowled over, back to Brad Scott, around the corner, to the full forward area, Lynch can't manufacture a mark, Wasn't that tough play all round, and eventually it went forward. The contest from Lynch again, he's done it all day. The kick went right. Akamanis, who really can't kick on his right foot, 
right foot has kicked it on his left as we know there's wonderful skills he struggled you would think with a bit of injury but able enough to put him that little bit further in front they dared to dream today the magpies they have had an almighty crack still there could be time fraser makes the lead it's all You know, that, that season, 2002, was our best sort of home and away season. Like, we'd had more wins than, you know, the other two. And I suppose going up against Collingwood, Collingwood at the time, though, you know, they'd done their research. I, I found out a few years ago when I was went down and did some, uh, I suppose, work experience with Mick Malthouse. I was with Dean Laidley, who was his senior assistant, and he was telling me about that year and what they did in 2002. And Lee, the secret with Lee is, he, and all good coaches are very consistent like amazingly consistent and Lee was so consistent that Dean Laidley knew every move Lee was going to make in that grand final he had like a good chess uh, player he would have a move for that he would have a, a counter move and they just were so well planned and their execution was amazing so in that game it was much closer than it probably should have been in the sense of our talent versus theirs but cold wet day uh, ball on the ground their bigger bodies could get involved where it was a bit dry and we could get out and run. It was even though we our bodies were uh, just as big, if not bigger. It was more we could use our athleticism and run and skill. But their tackling efficiency was outrageous. We had a ninety percent tackle rate, which in the AFL, and even when we had good days, if we got to eighty percent, we were like, that's you know, held tackles. It's outstanding. So they just played a great game. So for me, that game was horrible because I, I tore my right adductor half off the bone in the first sort of couple minutes of the game and I I literally hobbled around the game. I was, I was glad it was wet in one way and I was glad I had, because I was, you know, as Mike Sheen said, the best kick ever played and I had two sides that I could use when I needed. And that left foot came in very handy and kicking that goal was was just, you know, one of those things. You know, I kind of look back and think that in some ways they were well planned but also incredibly lucky that they kind of got that close but I, I don't want to be disrespectful because they played really well and we, we got the job done still but it was, it was a crack. Yeah, I think Collingwood played as well as they possibly could have on that day. Definitely, definitely. I think they've, they've admitted that. I mean, the following year they had a different team really. They had a lot of change, a lot more speed and, and skill and that's Mick Moldas. He's, he's always thinking ahead so yeah, he's even said that. And if you ask Mick, for a long time, that was the only team he ever put on his on his wall. And that's, you know, he's won premierships with West Coast at this stage. And he was the proudest coach you'd ever see was that team, he said, because of the way that they they played on that day. And that's, that's a big compliment for that group. And, and I'm sure that when he sees them, he has even, you know, it's never an issue having a chat to those boys because they did the job on the day and nearly, nearly pinched one that, you know, many would, would argue they shouldn't have got even close, that close, um, with the team they were up against, that's for sure. What about the year after, 2003, when you, you faced Collingwood again, and this time you just wiped the floor with them? It was basically over at half-time. Was, was that a surprise to beat them by that much? Here it is! The Brisbane Lions have done it! The Hawks, the Bombers, the Crows, they couldn't do it in the 80s and the 90s. But the Lions have gone back to back to back to become the greatest side of the modern era. They are football's invincibles. What a win, Robert. 
magnificent win, Hannah. Three in a row. Football history. The best team that I've seen. It was. But what happened was, we in the qualifying finals, great game. They beat us by four points, which got them in the prelim. The other thing that really hurt them in that prelim, they lost uh, Anthony Rocker. You know, he was just such an important cog in their forward machine. He went in the ruck, he, you know, he played roles forward. Like, he was, he was really important in their structure. And when they lost that, it almost deflated the group. I've spoken to a couple of Collingwood players who played in that game. They, they said that, and supporters said that the game, the grand final was almost lost there and then at the Tribune on the Monday. And I think uh, a couple of things happened early in the game, which, I mean, Lynchy tried to centre the ball after uh, Reese or sort of fumbled it, which is unlike Reese, and picked it up and tried to centre and kick the goal. Like, you know, from all the stuff in the last two years, uh, the shit that didn't go right, that should have, and it was frustrating. Uh, everything out of nowhere went went real well. And so I think if you, you look at it like that, who gets a chance to go to three little like, four grand finals? And then you get a chance to, to do that on the big stage. You know, you're going to get some luck eventually. And for us, it felt like it finally, in a grand final anyway, everything just went right. And for Collingwood, unfortunately, it just all went wrong. And you had a pretty fair game in 2003. Jonathan Brown, back on his feet. Hackermanis within range. He dearly loved to land a blow for the Lions. Takes it. Hackermanis roaming free. One bounce from Hacker. On the brink of something great, Jason Hackermanis goes to town. 50 out, tried to sell the dummy unsuccessfully. Got it out to Black. Black to Akamanis. Can he win some more magic? Yes, he can. Akamanis has got three. Now it comes out to Akamanis. Can he find some space? He can. Akamanis has kicked four. McRae. Here he goes again. Jason. Jason Akamanis. He is a menace with five. Yeah, it was my best. Uh, five goals, too, from, you know, half forward. Pretty good return. I'm probably the only bloke ever to kick five goals from half forward. It's a small forward, and I'll get a Brent, um, North Smith medal. But Simon Black, I mean, he's a superstar. He had 36 touches and, and just ran a muck in the midfield. And I think that was a record at that stage. And, and in the end, uh, Clark Keating, who was just the best player over those three grand finals, uh, came second. And you wonder what, what game they're fucking looking at half the time. But anyway, that's... <laughs> That's uh, the blokes who get the job on the day, and I think, I think even 2002 when we won and Buckley got the North Smith, if Michael Voss wasn't the most important player and the best player on the ground over the four quarters, they'd done the the voting ten minutes before the end of the game. Could you get any fucking dumber? And they changed the rules after that. You had to do it after the game and all that kind of stuff. So it just shows you where the system was at even then. We still had convoluted and had lots of holes in it, but. Yeah, Blackie's great. He's a super, superman as well. He's, he's uh, I've caught up with him many times. He's supposed to be in my basketball team, but of course he hasn't shown up in three weeks, but that's Blackie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, when you talk about Buckley 2002, because Michael Voss for mine was unbelievable that day. And that mark he took in the last few minutes just personified him as a player. Hurry, kick away, up to the wing. Tarrant, can he get oh, there? Oh, again. What a mark. He is indestructible, though, isn't he? He did. Yeah, he just did the things, you know, that's why he's a superstar. He's a super player. You know, he, had, he got collected earlier in that game in 2002 by uh, Burns, and, and and he had the most bruised testicle you can imagine. It was like, 
you, you see guys who you know have motorcycle accidents or or push bike accidents and and it was worse than them so and he went around and did that and with all that pain you know everyone knows that all boys know how painful the balls are there's so many nerves around there not funny so Paul Rossi had to put up with that and then did that in the last of the five minutes of the game just to control the, the tempo and kept us in it at times when you know it was just a one-on-one kind of game a one-on-one battle and if you could win more than you lost you were a chance and that's personified that kind of that last little bit that we needed and that's why that team went back to back yes I do know what it's like uh, in the balls it, it doesn't hurt for the first <laughs> the first the first four or five seconds you don't feel it and then it comes oh yeah and it hurts everywhere it doesn't just hurt your ball it hurts in your stomach it's like a yeah it's, it's horrible like the, yeah, it's like the secret to winning a battle a fight <laughs> against another bloke kicking the balls you're a big chance <laughs> referee says fellas take a break it's half time Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. The year after, so 2004, you make a fourth grand final and it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to win four premierships in a row. I mean, no, no disrespect to Collingwood. I know they did it in the 20s, but it was different back then. This was, you would have been the greatest team of all time. But this time you're on the losing side against an underdog Port team who were notorious chokers prior to, to 2004. You were in front at halftime. You were playing a f- sensational game. What went wrong from probably halfway through the third quarter? The magic number in football is four. Only once in history has a team won four consecutive flags. An incredible feat, an achievement so rare that it has never been repeated. Numbers whose own stories are being written by the great lions who carry them. The bigger picture, history's tale for the ages, isn't about individuals. It's about a team, its relentless brilliance, and a number that, given another Brisbane triumph, will be this day's dramatic, historic endpoint. The best ever? We're about to find out. Taken by Lapp, and here's Akamatis. And that is his first... 41 goals, 31 for the season. Jason Akamatis. And that's almost Akamatis' corner down there in grand finals. He's done it again! said during the week he thought they'd win and he thought he'd play pretty well. Well, he started very well. He's kicked two and the Lions are right back in it. Pern, Carousella, Akamanis, talking about sparkle. Jason knows how to kick there. Oh, what an extraordinary kick from Jason Akamanis. Only he could do it. Only he could do it. When he kicked it, I thought, what is he doing going onto his left foot? He's a natural right footer. Such is his confidence in his left boot. Doesn't matter what side of the ground he's on. Carousella just came onto the ground. 
Lepin to Carousella to Ekamanis and have a look at this goal. There it is! It's all over! Port Adelaide! They had the power to win! And it was very much history in the making today! This is what football is all about. Unbridled jubilation around the MCG. And as always, there's a loser. But you can never call the Brisbane Lions losers. Yeah, simply energy. And that's that's the thing that... Uh, and I'll, I've said it publicly, and I say it on podcasts all the time. How, how in that era, Andrew Dimitri, who was just a fat Cypriot, who uh, was good at doing deals. We loved him when he was on our side. He was a CEO at the time, was allowed to get away with just changing the rules and making up. They did have a rule at that stage that, that there, used, there had to be one final at the MCG. Yeah, because you played Geelong in Melbourne and you should have played them at the Gabba. That's right. We played the prelim final against the Cats. We would have played at home. We would have destroyed them anyway. We just won that game. In fact, I thought that uh, the Cats, with the support they had, they, they actually choked. They had they should have won. I mean, they outplayed us for much of the last quarter. We just sort of hung on and got ourselves into a fourth grand final. But because of those rules and because Andrew Mitchell just couldn't fucking uh, deal with the, the Melbourne horse shit that comes out of there. And it is, you know, still, I mean, don't worry about the 20s when Collingwood won all those flags and all that shit. That, it's a completely different league. Those boys never travelled. They travelled across, you know, a couple of suburbs to play. They didn't travel interstate every second week. I do, it's I not, agree. It's not, they're not even in the same conversation, but Andrew Dimitri doing that. And, and Lee Matthews rang him and said, mate, this is the prelim final weekend on the Monday. He said, mate, this is, this is absolute rubbish. And uh, told him such. And of course, Andrew doesn't like criticism like most people, but he also was able to do that. And in that era, uh, with the Melbourne Mafia, as we used to call it, get away with it. And it, it did cost us. So that back-to-back travel, we weren't always great back-to-back travels because of the, the sheer amount of time it takes to move back and forth and then recover and you couldn't get the training in it. I think the second half of that game, that, that's what showed that energy was gone. And the AFL, in the end, hurt themselves of a, of a better better grand final because of just sheer pig-headed arrogance. And you'll never hear, and if Andrew Dimitri ever come out and said, oh, no, and tried to justify it, he'd be shouted down. So it should. There wouldn't be a person who's got half a logical brain, even a, even a poor supporter that wouldn't say, yeah, I think you boys got fucking a little bit resolved there. In fact, you did. You got fucked over. And... That's the way it was. And Lee Matthews, as pragmatic as he is, just said, well, in 100 years, the record book says we lost and they won. And we don't have to go on about it, but, you know, we'll remember. We know why. Uh, we didn't give ourselves the best chance today. And, you know, we all made errors and we didn't win it. But, uh, you know, that's that. <laughs> Typical Lee. Let's get on. Does that 2004 grand final, obviously, if you won it, it would have been the four-peat. Does, do you look at it and, and see it as... We still won the three, or is it? Do you feel like there's a missing piece of that puzzle? Well, we never know now, but it certainly was when you get resolved by head office in a game that's supposed to be fair and just. And Australia has a great culture like that. You know, they bring the top down and bottom up, and that uh, culture of of mediumness. And we do that with the AFL to have have something like that happen. It's, it's well, it's a, it's a blight on on blokes' leadership. Like Andrew Mitchell did a lot of things right, and yet he does that and just completely fucked it up. You know, there's no. There's not any reason that you couldn't uh, say, okay, well, what we'll do is this deal with the MCG, we'll have to look at it later. Let's have it at home, they deserve it, they've earned it. That's the whole idea of the competition. You know, you earn your home, home ground advantage, and that's that. But no, not that year. But, uh, in the end, when people go, you know, it was the best team or the second best, or, you know, with the Hawthorns and Geelongs that have come, well, I never had to travel that 
most most people agree we probably beat both those teams. We both played our best by probably ten goals. Even the Richmond era now, coaches who played with me said the same thing. So what do you do? One hundred percent, I agree with everything you just said because. I mean, there's a lot of talk, and there always really has been in the AFL, that it's Victorian bias, this, that. You guys come from Brisbane, a rugby league town, and win, you almost win four premierships in a row. Your 3P, and I'm not just saying this because i got you on here now, Brisbane's 3P was better than the Geelong dynasty, was better than Richmond's dynasty, and was better than Hawthorne's 3P. 100%. Yeah, and you get a, you get a lot of uh, twos and fro's. You get your biases, and everyone's got them. But you know, it's like there's no one could doubt that you know whether it was the Bulls back to back three peats over you know whatever it was that six seven year was eight year span whatever it ended up being. Like that that is in their era and their sport and the way it is the way all those teams are they're, they're the best in that era. And for us in this era, and even just before us, was as I mentioned, Adelaide, who was just wonderful those back to back premierships, came good at the right time and played some great footy. Uh, to set the, the bar, it's, it's sort of funny, isn't it? Like everyone then just looks at the record books, and uh, the debate has always been just because a bloke can play a Jimi Hendrix song doesn't mean he's Jimi Hendrix. Just because they uh, can match what you've done doesn't mean that the, you're the original, like you're the, the dude that did it. Kobe Bryant says all the time, hey, my moves are Michael Jordan's move. I'm not better than him. He created those moves. He's, he invented them. He's the guy that came and set the bar so high. And you can you can probably beat it, but you still won't be as athletic as him. Um, you know, and you need a lot of things to go right just to get near it. So all credit to those teams, those Geelong teams and Hawthorne teams. We set the bar for them and they, they wanted to step up to it and they did. But, you know, were they the first? Of course not. Uh, who's better? The guys that actually have to travel and do it? And don't play the MCG much, or the blokes that come in after and just kind of match it, but never beat it. Yeah, too right, absolutely. After the 2004 Grand Final loss is basically when the reign of Brisbane ended. I mean, 2005 was a great year for you, but for Brisbane as a whole, you missed the finals. And then 2006 is when things start to get a little bit ugly at Brisbane, and your ending there is well documented. If you're happy to talk about it, what sort of went wrong there in those last couple of years with Brisbane and, and what sort of led to you departing the club? Yeah, 2005 was a great year. I was, uh, you know, I wanted to be in that by myself. I've been unlucky. I, when I won the brand, I came fourth. The blokes that beat me were Michael Voss, Simon Black and, and Nigel Lappin, you know, <laughs> three Hall of Famers. It's not like I was beaten out by some chumps or some blokes that just had good years. Now, these are superstars. So uh, 2005 on a personal level was wonderful. Played a lot in the midfield and uh, and really did carry the group as much as I could. Played some good footy, but we'd lost a lot of talent, a lot of experience, and a lot of young guys coming in. It was it was pretty ugly. So in the end, like I'm a competitive dude, I hate losing. And my problem with with our game in 2006 wasn't that we were on the way out. I was already thinking about leaving. Like I was just that pissed off because I just want to win. And you have to go through a rebuild back then. You couldn't just go to the uh, where you have. You know, little things now you never did back then, uh, where you can just quickly get players and top up your back line and stay strong, which is what Hawthorne did, you know, uh, the way that they structured it. But back then you couldn't. Then you had to rebuild. And Lee's game plan was getting out. He was getting out coached, no doubt. By round one, when I wrote the column, which ended up pretty much being the final sure, um, it was it was me saying, I had three blokes rotating through me. I was knackered just trying because I wouldn't come off for a rest. I'd be tired. I'd press forward. And Geelong, at that stage, would beat us quite comfortably down in Geelong. Had a game plan where they were rotating, using the bench really well. And I'm like, well, we, we need to adapt. 
And I thought they would take it well, but I was well, man. He's like, a, he did not like that at all. That was that was straight up criticism in his mind. And and uh, you do that to Lee, and he's standing in the game, and man, he, he just he took it the worst possible way. And, and if it wasn't for me getting injured halfway through that year, it might have been sweet. But in the end, I got dropped. It was pretty average. There was a bunch of fucking players that were playing shit. I wasn't playing that bad. I was playing injured. And in the end, it was a horrible situation because here I am, can't perform because usually I can talk it up and deliver. And when your body just let you down just for those couple of weeks, I had a t- hamstring tendon injury and that happened real quick. And that was the other problem. So my own form couldn't be uh, sustained. And then you know, Lee just said, that's it. And eventually, we, that was the 21st of July and got sacked and had to find a new club. It was pretty simple. So it was... And it was, Lee tried to get the players uh, on board and say, you know, this is what he's done, etc. And then, you know, to the most part, like, these are the guys I grew up with. So a lot of them knew me all the way through from, you know, basically 17 onwards. So it wasn't like they were uh, not willing participants. And many said, okay, yep, Lee, no worries. And when the boss says, mate, you've got to get him, he's got to be sacked. And you'll find a way to convince everyone. And, and in the end, the horseshit in the media was it was guys you know it's unanimous and it's never unanimous it's never going to be you can never get you know, that kind of group particularly a lot of my close mates in there to say no you should sack him I mean there's no doubt that I needed to leave but sack me that was a bit uh, drastic for some so in the end I just had to you know bite the bullet and say uh, you know that's it it's done and worked out worked out for everyone but I moved on in the end I found a good home in the Bulldogs at the time and it was a good fit for most of it, and life's like that. Unfortunately, you make your bed, you got to take ownership of it, and also say I did a lot of things wrong that I need to do better next time. So, it's a pretty good lesson, I think, for both of us. Yeah, right. And when you left Brisbane and went to the Bulldogs, was it? Were you just keen to sort of get out of there, or was it? Did it come with a bit of sadness? A club that you played for for a long time, four grand finals, three premierships. Was it? Was it really sad to have to leave, or were you ready to, to start a new chapter? In my mind, I was ready to leave because I just, you have to do it. You have to, I was, I got the kind of mind that just needs to say, that's it, and cut it dry and say, everything's bad, move on. But to grow up here and have such a huge network, and, you know, I was, I was the local guy, so I had all the deals, I had lots of sponsors, and lots of media, and lots of attention. I was as famous as any public sporting figure here, including Broncos, cricketers, you name it, the guys that usually are famous, uh, if not more than all of them. So everywhere I'd go, I'd be spotted. That was, it was cool. But in the end, to get out was kind of good too. I'd had, I'd had a lot of, lot of my life here, but also my history and, and everything's wrapped up in the, the identity. So to move to Melbourne where you think the grass is greener uh, was always on the card. And because of, I wanted to go to the media, small media, Melbourne, more jobs, it made sense. So it would, that'll give you an idea why Melbourne was pretty much the only place. I didn't want to go to another interstate club, but being there, done that. I was ready to go to the big smoke as far as Aussie rules footy is concerned. And Melbourne was, was the place. And there was a few suitors, but the best two deals came out of uh, Essendon with Kevin Sheedy, which was for two years though. And then the Bulldogs, which were coming, they just won their first final. They were about to redo their facilities and I was... I could see where they were going and I really liked that they were going to be the team on the rise and potentially get in the grand final. So, And then they had a three-year deal. So it was kind of all those factors put in together. Um, the Bulldogs were by far and away the, the team to, to go to at that at that stage. And that's, that's pretty much that. So you get to the Bulldogs in 2007. 
you played three and a half years at the club, and just on the field, you did play with some great players. You played with Brad Johnson, Callan Ward, Brian Lake, Adam Cooney, Ryan Griffin. You even played half a season with Barry Hall under Rodney Eade. You played Scotty in the t- West. Yeah, Scotty West. yeah, Scotty West yeah, as well. You played in in two prelims there, two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine. It was the Bulldogs were a great club, but you could never really replicate it in finals against the big teams, against the St Kilda's, the Geelong's. What do you think it was that stopped you from actually making a grand final? We talked about averaging 60 points against them in the last 12 weeks, where they're on 54. The Dogs. It was a great contest, hard fought, but Geelong yet again. Terrific win into the final, the grand final next week. Seven points. Can the dogs do something here? I doubt it. Time is going to beat them. And St Kilda are going to beat them. St Kilda to a grand final. What a game! Not sure. I don't think the coach was probably the best coach that we could have had in that. If we had a maybe... I don't know. And that area had Ross Lyon and a few other guys who were just, you know, hard asses, but they were, you know, they got your, got your team going. I think the way that, that uh, Ross Lyon was playing the game, if you had the talent the Bulldogs had, I think it might have been a different story. Rodney Rodney was pretty pretty good in the way he kind of thought about the game, but yet he's also a fucking lunatic. Like, you know, he'd fly off the handle all the time and fucking spit chips and like, man, what's wrong with this one? So, uh, and that's the era it was, I think, for Rodney and those guys. It's a, uh, it's an older era. It's one where you got away with yelling and screaming and carry on. It wasn't the best for player psychology now, but now it seems they're, they're more stuffed up than ever because, you know, they don't want to hear good things. You're like, well, you know, you've got to have thick skin and you've got to be able to handle the criticism because, you know, you're a public figure playing a, a very hard sport that you're going to cop it every week. I mean, you get judged every week. It's, it's good and bad, I know, but you've got to, it's part of the, the deal. You want to get paid good money. Hey, you can go and sit on the dole if you want, but. You know, if you want success, you got to work hard. So I think Rodney, to his credit, did get a lot of good out of that group. But, you know, he still had that side where he could easily, you know, ruffle feathers and, and have blokes in the group just jump off him. Lucky for the Bulldogs had a bunch of experienced players and knew how to deal with lunatic coaches and they were able to settle the group down. So, you know, a bit of good luck, a bit of bad luck. I think playing in the three prelims the club did in that period shows it was a good team. Good teams playing three prelim finals, no doubt. Just a bit unlucky, and we had that one. I think Revolt picked a goal late. I got done for a deliberate out of the bounds, which was fucking horseshit. They ended up kicking a goal out of that. But with the new system, you would have noticed it was touched. Jared Harbrow is now at the Suns. He touched that ball. It was pretty clear on the bloody replay. I, I could see it on the ground. And we would have won that game. We're in a grand final. So, you know, you can be lucky. The systems can hurt you depending on what's available at the time. But uh, that's, that's life at footy, I suppose. You win some, you lose some. And, uh, lucky enough to win three, I'll take them. But yeah, you could easily have been another grand final. It's funny you say that. And I was at this game in 2008. Do you remember a game against Adelaide at Amy Stadium when you rushed the ball over and Jason Paul Pleasure got the goal claim? Do you remember that? And he, he his foot did not even touch the ball. You literally just skidded in, slapped yeah. the ball. You do remember that? Yeah, I remember that. That was another, that was clear. In the system. That was clear as day. Your hand, you you push that through with your hand. That's our goal up by days. Back then, he had a split second to make decision, and you know you got the local crowd bias, and it's it can just work for you, or it doesn't. And some days, I kicked the goal. The grand final was touched, but you wouldn't know it when I kicked five goals too. So you know, 
it comes and it goes. It works out. It evens out over that journey. And, you know, if it costs you the game or a grand final, you may have to live with that forever. But mostly it's not too bad. But, yeah, you can get up. Yeah, right. Now, you started having a few issues with the Bulldogs because it seems from reading your book, you the Bulldogs weren't always, for want of a better term, your cup of tea. Is that fair? Yeah, the Bulldogs, Bulldogs weren't too bad. I had a lot of support, particularly uh, the younger players, more the older established players. And they, they know, and I've said this to them, they're, they're not bad fellas, most of them. I mean, I've talked to every one of them, uh, no worries at all, and they, they wouldn't vice a nurse. And a lot of guys, you would think, uh, at that stage, like Scotty West uh, was very much against the handstand, for example. But Scotty and I talk great, we you know, get on fine. It's just Scotty at that time was a very good individual, hadn't really been in teams that had succeeded. And that, that it showed when I went there because when you you accept each other for who they are and they accept you accept what they do, right or wrong, there's different to you that works. And for me, doing a handstand or, or eating certain foods and, and preparing the way I did as professionally as it is, that's the way it worked for me. Some of those can be just crazy, those you know, do whatever, and they, they just show up and they play great. So everyone's different. And that was the thing that that, that lack of, uh, I suppose, in a better word, uh, empathy towards what I was doing that got me going. Uh, they just didn't have that in some of the boys. It wasn't really like it's everyone, but it's certainly a select few. So it looked worse than it probably was. But I've, but like everything, like even now, you know, the media, the loudest voices seem to get heard versus the reality that the majority, like, like today's Australia Day, well, pretty much it's categoric. Uh, the majority of the population just love Australia, love Australia Day, don't give a crap about the date, don't carry on about Invasion Day and all this shit. You know, like, it's complete horseshit. It's only really come about in the last four or five years all because the this small minority have a silk and, and they want to feel important about themselves. So they, you know, go and tell everyone and they, they feel good about having the media come and listen to their quotes and, you know, they think they're changing the world and they're doing fucking nothing but just, you know, making themselves full of hate when they should be just more grateful. So it's a bit like that with the Bulldogs and, you know, those guys who were still my mates, who were critical at the time. There's a couple of guys, you know, I wouldn't uh, say that I'd, I'd ever chase them for a conversation because they're just, you know, they were selfish pricks. So what do you do? Uh, that happens. That happens in teams. But, you know, you work that out. You, you make your judgments as you go and a lot of good guys and some, some bad eggs. But, you know, everywhere in life it's going to be like that. You mentioned the, the handstand. Now, I, I love the handstand. You, you do it every Brisbane game at home. You did it a couple of times at the Bulldogs, but did they actually say to you, Akka, do not do the handstand? What they did was they said, we think that you doing the handstand is selfish and it's, it takes us away from the group. Then, oh, look, if you do the handstand, we've got to all be around. Like, So we, we want it more as a team. So I understood what they were trying to say and trying to do, of which I happily... And said, look, I'm, I'm happy to make these uh, investments in, in the group. It means it'll help. Now, in my heart, I'm like, you fucking boys need to fucking grow up. You boys need to stop being fucking girls. That's in my mind. But, you know, when you're part of a team, you've sometimes, like any good marriage, there's always compromise. And to make it better and more harmonious, that's that's the stuff you just got to do. And I was happy to do it. But, you know, uh, it always riled me up when they, they made it. That, that that was about me when it was about team winning. If you if you pricks could do fucking handstands, let's all do it together, stop fucking whinging. So <laughs> it was just a bit like, you know, whatever. But at the time, I was happy to go along with it. Now now I look back and think, man, you know, you guys need to just relax a bit. But, you know, you try and you always want to be liked and you want to do the right thing by the team and your team makes it be on your side. So 
it always helps. It makes it a bit easier because they're the ones going to kick you the ball and vice versa. So, yeah, it always works okay in groups if you can do that. But, yeah, it's a delicate compromise, can I say. From what you describe, it seems like the Bulldogs, not that they were trying to be something they weren't, but they were almost trying to be the perfect club and they really, really cared what other people thought about them as an organisation. Is that definitely. is that true? Definitely. Yeah, definitely perfect, and uh, and them carrying on like that. They were very much the opposite to Brisbane. Brisbane were not beholden to the AFL. Never relied on AFL money. We're a big, strong, powerful club with lots of membership and lots of money in the bank. And so that that was uh, that was a different uh, mentality. And so the Bulldogs were always subservient, and they would always just well, the AFL said, "Hey, jump!" They say, "How far?" And so I, I think not only are you right, but that just uh, insecurity, yeah, that's why you need a really strong leadership. And unfortunately for the Bulldogs, that was lacking at times. Not just Rocky Head, who was the coach, but you know you've got you've got guys like David Smorgan, who you know he couldn't fucking run a trip graph. Or he's from a wealthy family, he's got lots of money, but you know he's, he's never worked hard. He doesn't know what that is, and it was always a bit of a, uh, a grandstander, gutless wonder when you really pushed him, and pretty fragile and shallow underneath. So. And then Peter, Peter Goulden's was not the same. He's more, how do we say, uh, just a big mouth. Uh, you know, he's a lawyer, so he thinks he knows everything. But in reality, he was, he was very much disliked. But, of course, he's coming under the guise of being the club and we're talking for the club and all this kind of horseshit. So you get away with that that individual behaviour. So if he didn't like something, he'd just make a big song or dance and do something about it because he could. And that's the way it rolls at the clubs like that. I wonder if it, if them having such lack of success had anything to do with that. Definitely. Well, they had, they've got the most amount of Brownlow medalists. Yeah, so they do too. It just shows you they've very much been a, a very outstanding individualistic club. They've had great, great uh, players, but never great teams. And that's really that. Culturally, it's definitely there. And it, it hangs in the subconscious when you go through the rooms. You know, all the Brownlow medalists are up at this. One premiership team at that stage in the VFL, very good in the VFA when they were there, but then they've got uh, other other sort of, you know, they never really had success in the AFL. So winning in 2016 was just wonderful for them. Now they've got some bit of swagger, you know, people want to go there. And, and that's really a, a big difference culturally. And what about the media stuff? Because you wrote a column on homosexuals in sport and there was a lot has been said about there was no trust you know, and I've heard that on many interviews I've listened with you, the, the no trust, no trust, no trust. What does that mean? Well, with, I think the point that I was trying to make is pretty clear. Look, no worries where your teammates would be probably a bit more accepting. Although, you know, you can see just doing a handstand, they can fucking shit the bed, you know, and not be accepting and take you for you. But, you know, being being gay, is all that, that your teammates actually be fine. It's not them I was talking about. It's more the fans. And your fans and your opposition... So, you know, supporters who are against you. Man, anything you can do, they can get on you to use against you. You can get gun done for, for drink driving or, or speeding, and they'll try and use that shit. So when you've got that, that's a really big thing for a lot of guys. I mean, that's that's something they keep hidden. If it was, if everyone was so open, then why don't they just come out and say it? If it's a big issue, I don't, I don't care. But, you know, just think about it, that we're all, you know, there's going to be different different reasons for different people to like and dislike it. But, you know, it's up to you. I've never said that don't do it. I've never said... Uh, like the, the my Herald Sun put it as a subtitle, stay in the closet. I was like, fuck, just the two years before I said come out, why don't we come out? But this gay hunting was just getting a bit much. So 
in the end, I really don't care what you do on private. You know, it's your business. And like it is, I don't, I don't go, oh, so how was sex last night with your wife? You know, I feel fucked. <laughs> but they, they, they tend to think that, you know, because they've got a chip on their shoulder, they worry about what everyone else thinks. You know, whenever you don't even have to be gay to fucking, everyone's worried about, you know, what everyone else thinks occasionally. So it's a, it's a minefield. But anyway, that was a, that was an opinion a long time ago. If I wrote it the same now, I'd probably be able to express it better, but it was just, ah, it's just a little bit of fight. I mean, people still won't talk to me and have a sook about it, and some people, you know, just can't get over it. But it's like, well, I'm pretty sure it's not my problem. Pretty sure it's yours. So when you go sort it out with a psych or something, don't, don't wish to me about it. I said it how many years ago, and you're still fucking carrying it. It's 11 years ago. You know, get over yourself. <laughs> things are starting to get heated. Uh, look, guys, th- quick three-quarter time break here on A5Q. I just want to let you all know that in the next couple of weeks, I've got Kevin Lish, who is coming on the show, who is an NBL legend, uh, a 2010 championship player and two-time MVP. I sat down and had a chat with him about his career and his in his life. Uh, here's a little snippet to get you in the mood. I think there are a lot of emotions because I knew halfway through that season that I was going to have to essentially medically retire. That was going to be my last game. You, you know, we had some idea it was going to be Bogus' last game. You know, Damian Martin retired from the other end. I think at the end of the day, we had four guys, four or five guys who are international guys who had to get back home. You know, all the boarders were starting to do, do their thing. Not many people knew about this novel thing. So... You know, I think we we felt, you know, pretty at peace with with um, our decision when you know it was called off. But then after that, um, to be honest, I was like, I don't even remember where I was when I think it was, uh, yeah, when the NBL announced that Perth was going to win, and I really didn't feel anything because at the end of the day, I think we felt at peace that we are taking care of, especially our international guys. Kevin Lish is a lovely guy, so you'll definitely enjoy that episode. But for right now, let's get back. But for right now, let's get back to the forever controversial Acker. So if you had of, because you, you were put your foot down and said, I'm not going to give up the media. If you had have said, yep, no worries, boys, I'll, I'll give up the media. Do you think you would have remained at the Bulldogs for that 2010 season? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I can guarantee you one thing, that uh, that was like it was never not going to happen. I mean, sometimes you just got to stand firm. You've got to say to you, you know, you club, look, fuck, I'll fucking bet more than any of you fucking pricks in here. No one else has had to fucking make the investments to be in here, but you all just keep fucking whinging about shit that you can't control, and now you're trying to change me. You can't just can't do that. It's not going to fucking happen. So you accept it. Or you do something about it. And, of course, they had the power to do something about it. So, of course, you know, leadership group. And, and uh, you know, they, they tried every trick in the book and fucking... You know, it's pretty wishy-washy. But, you know, when you get ganged up against, which no one likes, and I did, you know, where you got seven or eight just very powerful figures from players to past players to board members to presidents not on your side, it's a pretty fucking lonely place. You ain't gonna, you're not going to live a long time if you have that in the footy club. And, and I'd gotten away with lots of support in my past just because people understood that it's not a big issue and they need to just settle down. But because they get, just get carried away with the, the moment and then, you know, make stupid decisions. And that's what the difference between good leadership and bad leadership is. And in the end, they've all apologised except for a few because they're too pig-headed and thought they were right. And here we are. Is it true you were told if you give up the media, you can be a four-time premiership player? Yeah, that's what they said, which I laughed at. 
then I said, that's not going to make any fucking difference. Mate, it's what I do on the field that matters, and I'm pretty sure what I'm doing is all right, so I get fucked. So, yeah, that's, that's the kind of way that they're trying to control people. Mate. It's laughable, but, you know, like, I mean, I don't know how many more examples you need of, of just that this shit just doesn't work. If you just let me do my thing, I'll, I'll be pretty good. I'll regulate myself and I'll learn my lessons and, and be better for it. But if you try and tell people, oh, don't go there, don't do that, well, the mind's not set up for that. It's set up to go and experience, not the bloody soul. Oh, jeez, let's be afraid of everything. Live fear. Because, I mean, 2010 was always going to be your last year, no matter what. How much did it hurt you when your season was ended early and you couldn't be a part of the final series and you knew then that that was the way your career was going to end? Is that because for, for such a player like yourself to go out that way is, is not right, really, to end it like that? The troubled union between Jason Ackermanis and the Western Bulldogs AFL club has ended in acrimony. The Bulldogs sacked 33 year old Ackermanis today saying his position had become untenable after several recent breaches of trust. As Peter Lennigan reports, the decision brings to an end a highly decorated but controversial football career. It was a sudden end to a colourful career. Uh, it's with disappointment that today I announce the termination of Jason Nakamanis' contract with the Western Bulldogs. This was a unanimous decision by the club. It was surprising too, given that earlier today there were signs the club's frosty view of Ackermanis could be thawing. He's ticking some boxes, there's no doubt about that, but uh, it was unfortunate last week, but uh, um, it's just a matter of spots in the team now. But by late this afternoon, his fate had been sealed. Jason has been a very good player for our club since he arrived here in 2007. But recent events have made the relationship between Jason and the Western Bulldogs untenable. No, it's fucked, and it, and it burns in my soul. It's probably the only thing left that I just I fucking can't stand. What I can't stand is now, you know what they do? They uh, they do it, they do it the right way. I'm not saying they learned anything from when I did it, but they certainly fucked it up. Didn't give me a chance to have a last game. Didn't give me a chance to say goodbye to the fans. Just left me hanging. All because of a few selfish pricks in, in the Bulldogs who just fucking couldn't handle it, had a silk and, you know, like it. There's not one party ever speaks well of those guys for doing that. Like, when you give your life to the game, you deserve just a hair bit more. It wasn't even much. wasn't fucking even asking for much. Just just to clap around or, or just to say thanks so much. And in the end, I never had that. Never had a chance to say goodbye or anything like that. It's like, it, it didn't have to be that way. And so it's it's a shame it happened. Um, you know, I walk away and I, was, I would have had it. I carried it with me for a long time, I've got to tell you. I'm over it now, but, you know, now that you mentioned it, it does it still burns bright, that fucking hate. For, the, for what they did and that lack of just, you know, hey, listen, mate, 200, 325 games and three premierships around, like, you know, but you're fucking, you just settle down and stop thinking about yourself as you ask for a second and just give us a clap or give us a game and just say, okay, thanks, okay, thanks so much. And you can still be upset with me, but just show a bit more respect because I kind of earn it where you never play the game, say, Dad Smallman or fucking Peter Gordon because you're too fat and fucking lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So I'm assuming you haven't spoken to, to those two or you haven't reconciled the differences since you left in 2010. Oh, mate, why would I? I mean, they're fuckwits and arseholes. They're guys in your life you just don't need. If they're, they're prepared to just waste your, your time and time, you know, i got paid to be there, don't get me wrong. But fuck, the way that they treated me, you, you know, I mean, it's as good as abuse and they get... The, the bullying that I copped, and they're supposed to be covered from work safe and all this shit, and the laws are supposed to protect you, and they just fucking just disregarded all of it. 
and just turned into the greatest pack of fucking assholes you can you can poke a stick at. And so when that happens to you, you're never going to feel good about it. I mean, I can rationalise and say, oh, look, would I behave that way? Hell no. Because, you know, you've got to see it from someone else's point of view. These guys are just so selfish, those two. They don't really care. They only care about themselves in such, such so strongly. But you couldn't get two blokes that are more in love with themselves in your life. And, you know, you ask anyone, there's evidence back there. You don't even listen to me. There's hundreds of people who will tell you that. So, you know, we judge them on that, only what they do and what they did to me, for example, is pretty fucking average. And they've done it. I, I guarantee that we, if there's me, there's another 10 minimum because, you know, guys like that get away with that behaviour. They haven't learned that. Just, you know, if they had skills, they would know how not to do it. And yet they still fucked it up. So they clearly don't. Wow. So you didn't, you didn't really, particularly towards the end, there wasn't much about the Bulldogs that you, you loved about the Bulldogs. That's what I'm trying to say. I've still got some great mates out of there. That's the thing, you know. Like, I've still got really close friendships and I still talk to them today. Like, Dale Morris, I mean, Cameron Chalone, who was our strength and conditioning coach, Jake Lansberg, was the doctor. Uh, Gary Zimmerman, who was the doctor. Uh, Sue Cordley, who was a physiologist. Like, I talked to and, and a lot of the players, you know. If I see Brad Johnson and uh, Scotty West, when we're in the same function, we always have a good old yarn. Yeah, it's, it ain't that bad, but just those two. And, and that's the thing, you know. I mean, Always had a few run-ins with leadership at the best of time, but but fuck those two were just they were up there for shit house, that's for sure. From me personally, it seems like they saw you as you were being an individual, and you're always in. You're always very strong. You were always part of the team. It was always team first for you. It would seem like there was a disagreement there. You felt you're a part of the team. They felt you're you're being an individual. Well, I, that's the thing. I said one, we're all individuals. So fuck it. Get your head out of your ass. We all are. We're all different. We all got little things that that work, things that don't work, things that you know help us, things that don't. Uh, it's a mindset up different. Like some people need to dwell for days. Some people can just get on with it. Uh, and but what we give to the team, you know, like if we're giving ourselves first and foremost on defence and running and tackling and and winning our own ball, fuck. What more do you need from the team? Do you need us there every day fucking being a counsellor? It's fucking someone else's job. Like, how much more team do you want to give? Like, they just didn't get it. And that's that's the reality. Individuals are always individuals. But they just tried to hide behind that, to, I think, the, the excuses that they were using just for them to get away with just shit behaviour. Wow. Well, look, Aka, you, you came to an end in 2010 and it was a shame the way you went out. And, and just... As we're about to close up now, I want to ask you, in my opinion, one of the most underrated skills in any sport is the ability to kick or pass a ball on both sides of your body. Now, you, along with, I'd say, Darren Jarman and Sam Mitchell were the best I've ever seen on kicking both right and left foot. Was that something you had to religiously practice at, or were you always ambidextrous? Yeah, no, it's just perishable. So if you don't practice it, it don't work. So for me, well, I... I set up and got great coordination. That was certainly something I worked. Every second kick was left foot, you know, left foot, right foot, training. Unless I had an injury, it was always working, 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 after practice, always. And kicking is the hardest skill in footy, uh, even now. You know, it's it's not easy being a good kick. So the big judge is the best kicker to play. Like, that's a that's a pretty big rap. But then again, uh, I don't think it is because I worked my ass off for it. So, you know, I couldn't kick 70 metres both feet if I didn't fucking practice it. I was out there when no one else was. They were at home watching TV while I was out the Gabba on a Tuesday, six balls, kicking them from that far out. So, you know, watching TV. Way, yeah, it's great compliment, but in the same breath, it's well and truly deserved. <laughs> that's that's awesome. We were sitting there watching TV and you were kicking on your left foot. No, because you could kick left foot 60 metres out on the boundary line. It was amazing to watch. 
Oh yeah, for me that was a, you know like a two foot punt. You know, as I did that so often, and you don't have to think about it. And that's that's the difference. You know, don't get me wrong, I did miss a couple of goals here and there, but you know, that's what a highlight reel's for. Everyone looks good on highlight reel. Absolutely. <laughs> well, look, Aka, we are getting towards the end now. I'm going to ask you three more questions, and I always ask these three questions in one sentence. In your career, your AFL career from both Brisbane and the Bulldogs, your entire journey, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And who's the best coach you ever played under and why? The best player I played with, Michael Voss, is a super player, tough and hard. I played against Wayne Carey, probably the best I played against. There's a couple other notables, but uh, he, was, he was just the whole game plan was around him. He carried the club for a long time, superstar. And then Lynn Matthew, best coach I ever played with, right? Not just for the success, but just the, what he did, what he bought off field was just spectacular and superb. And we're very lucky to have had him, as crazy as he is. Awesome. Look, Akko, it's been an awesome chat, man. I really respect what you've done in your career. You, you were one of the greats of all time, and it's been such a pleasure to sit down and have a chat with you. I really appreciate your time here on the podcast. All right, brother. Thanks, DA. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.